coronavirus thing has started. Well, maybe not since its very get-go, but, but as it's progressed, I've been hearing this phrase among people a lot, and this phrase is a new normal. I hear it all the time. It's like every time I study it or research it, that's what I hear. Preparing for a new normal. Get ready for a new normal. And, and basically, what are they trying to communicate in that, whether you agree with it or not? The communication is that this is not a short-term thing. This is a long-term thing. So life is going to change. So we're going to have to adjust to a new way of living. They talk about expecting and preparing for a new normal. And as I was hearing that so often, it suddenly dawned on me that really the book of Galatians could almost be described as Paul trying to introduce Jewish Christians to a new normal. The, the whole book of Galatians is essentially Paul telling the Jewish Christians, because of the gospel that we've preached to you, uh, life is not the same for you. And life is not the same for us. It's not the same for the Gentiles. Christ has ushered in a new normal. You see, what was really happening as we've been working through this book and we see Peter's hypocrisy is the Jews wanted to preach a transformational gospel, but they didn't want to live the effects of that transformation. They wanted to maintain that distinction between Jew and Gentile, and they wanted to keep the Gentiles, you know, the, your proselytes, you need to be circumcised, you need to obey the law. They wanted life just to kind of continue as it always had been. And so Paul is trying to communicate in the book of Galatians, no, things are different now. He's trying to get them to respond to a new normal. And what we're going to see in our text today is that He's, he's introducing these Jewish Christians to a new normal, specifically as it pertains to the issue of obedience. Even in Christ, with the new covenant, we now, the Jews, Jewish Christians now, are, are called to think about their obedience to God differently than they ever have. And the reason this comes up is because of the message that he just got done preaching. So last week we preached the, the famous text in verse 16 that we are justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law. And we talked about how important this was during the times of the Reformation, and how it's this doctrine that separates us, not just from Roman Catholicism, but from every religion in the world, this issue that we are made right with God, not by obeying the law to a certain degree, but we are made right with God apart from works of the law, but by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. And even as I was preaching that message, I so badly wanted to break off into a tangent saying, okay, but, but here's the thing, hear me out. I'm not saying that we don't obey God. I, I resisted, I refrained, so I, I, do, I know it doesn't seem like it to you guys, but I do have some restraint and self-control when I'm preaching. Because I did do that, because that wasn't part of that text, right? Paul was, in that text that we were preaching, Paul was not talking about, well, okay, yeah, we still need to obey the law. He was just talking about, no, you are justified, not by the law, not by obedience, not by performance, but you are justified by faith in Christ, period. End of discussion. So we stuck with that. But I know that whenever we preach that message, especially to people who don't want to hear it, the first thing that's going to come out, okay, so if I'm not made right with God by obedience to the law, then I can just do whatever I want. I can believe in Christ, and now I can do whatever I want. I can live however I want. Is that what you're saying? Well, Paul anticipates that objection. He anticipates, he knows that once he rebukes Peter and rebukes the other Jews there and tells them, we're not justified by the law. He knows that's coming. And so he's going to answer it. If you would please look with me at Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Now let me clarify and, and say one more thing before we read the text. Paul addresses this issue with great clarity in many places in the New Testament. You can see this throughout the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6 especially deals with this question even more specifically. 
um, Paul is going to address this in very spiritual, what some have even called mystical terms. So this, this text, let me just say, is a difficult text. And even commentators sort of disagree on some of its meanings and translations. Uh, so I would encourage you that what we're going to be said today is, is not only, I think, consistent with this text, but is for sure consistent with other places in Scripture. Um, but I just want to brace you for that because he's going to speak in kind of ambiguous spiritual terms. But I really do believe you will see that this is ultimately the objection that he's answering. He is now talking, now that we've established you are not justified by works of the law, but by faith and faith alone. What do we do with obedience to God? What do we do with works now? And that's what I think he is looking at. So look with me at verses 17, and we will read through 21. And this will finally bring us to the end of Paul's rebuke to Peter. So this is the end of the narrative. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Well, he begins, as I said, in verse 17, anticipating an objection. And what's the objection that Paul anticipates to his faith alone justification gospel? Well, verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? So what's, what's the context here? What's he, what's he getting at? Well, if you remember from last week in verse 15, he introduced the category of Gentile sinners. And the Jews, up, up until the gospel, had misunderstood the Old Testament and the law. And they thought that we are righteous because we have the law and we pursue it. And the Gentiles are sinners because they are outside of the covenant. They are not law followers, and so they are sinful. The Jews never claimed that they themselves had no sin at all. But they saw... My status before God is righteous. I'm considered righteous before God. Why? Well, because I keep his law. So they had bought into, I am justified by my law keeping, because I'm, I'm just so good at obeying the law, and I try to obey the law, so I'm just before God. And the Gentiles don't, because they don't even have the law. How can they obey what they don't even have? So they're unclean sinners. We are righteous. And Paul came in with his gospel and obliterated that distinction. But the problem is, is what category did Paul put everyone into? Did Paul say, no, no, they're all righteous too? No, that, he didn't put everyone into the righteous category. He took the righteous and put them into the sinful category. He said, no, we're actually all sinners. We're all unclean sinners. That's who we all are. And the law will not fix that for you. All the law will do is worsen that. It will just simply expose to you how much of a sinner you are. So you need a new route to justification. You need to come to faith in Christ. And so here's what's happening in their mind. Okay, so... What has introducing Christ done to our religion, according to Paul? Well, number one, it made the righteous sinners. So once Christ entered into the picture, did more people get righteous? No, more people got sinful. So Christ has only increased sin. And on top of that, he's telling us to abandon the law and pursue faith. So what does Christ's religion look like? It means everyone's a sinner and you need to abandon the law and, and, and just keep promoting faith. So Christ's religion is like a religion of sin. 
You just, you're a sinner in Christ and you're not supposed to obey the law, so Christ is a minister of sin, it sounds like. I prefer the old way where at least we were considered righteous and we were supposed to obey the law, but now we're just sinners and we're supposed to abandon the law. So they almost see Moses was a mediator of righteousness and Jesus is the mediator of sin. Because Jesus is the one who comes in and says, no, you're a sinner and you need to abandon the law if you want to be justified. So isn't Christ then a minister of sin? If, if, if while I turn to faith in Christ, that means that I have to be a sinner and abandon the law, then what Christ wants from me is sin. And Paul answers at the end of 17 emphatically. The, the Greek phrase he uses is, is, is highly emphatic. You could interpret it as, may it never enter your mind or purge that from your mind or the less literal translations say something like what the ESV says, certainly not. He answers, no, certainly not. Christ is not a minister of sin. So what Paul is going to do is he's going to, in verse 18, lay a new foundation and begin sort of a new argument here. And he's, he's, he's attempting to explain to us how justification by faith alone, apart from works, does not mean that Christ wants you to be a disobedient sinner and never obey God. He says in verse 18, sort of laying this foundation, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So here's how Paul begins this, this train of thought. He says, listen, we came in and tore down this old system of righteousness. Right? Every, everyone, all, all amongst the Jews, we thought we were righteous by obeying the law. We were righteous by pursuing the law. And Paul says, we came with the gospel of faith and, and we tore that down. If I build that back up, so he's saying this is essentially what the Judaizers have done. Because the Judaizers, remember, they still believe that we need to believe in Jesus. These are not Jews who think Jesus is not the Messiah, who Jesus didn't die. These are Jews who have faith in Christ. They believe in Jesus. They believe, in the, they believe he's God. But they think that the law is still part of our justification. So Paul is accusing them of, of, of we tore this down. We tore this righteousness system down, came to faith in Christ, and now you just want to rebuild it. All you've done is add Christ to the equation. He hasn't actually changed anything. So Paul says, if I were to do that, what you guys are doing, if I were to tear it down, preach Christ, and then now I'm going to preach justification by law. If I were to rebuild it, what would that make me? That would make me a sinner. I would prove myself to be a sinner. Well, for two reasons. Number one, if, if he rebuilt it, it was either a sin to rebuild it or a sin to tear it down. One of those two things he shouldn't have done. So if he goes back on his word, he's a sinner. But here's the point. Here's what I think he's getting at. If he rebuilds this justification system, okay, now that we have faith in Christ, let's return to the law and let's try to be justified through the law. Paul says, how's that going to go for us? You think now that I have faith in Christ, I'm, just, I'm going to obey the law perfectly? No. If I rebuild that system up, all you will find there is condemnation. If, if you, now that you believe in Christ, but you return to righteousness through the law, I promise you, you will not find yourself to be a righteous person. If we go back to the law, there is nothing there for us but our own proof that we are sinners. So Paul says, first and foremost, if, if we go back to this system, there is nothing there for you but condemnation. And so I would just remind all of us here today, I, I dare you, try to read God's laws, try to read all of his standards for you in the Old and New Testament and see how well you hold up on just a daily basis. Jesus says that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have you ever done that? Have you ever literally loved God perfectly? All I need is one day to condemn you. 
All, all you need is one day to condemn me. Go back to the law. You will find nothing there but condemnation. If you go back to it in the old sense in trying to achieve your righteousness. So Paul continues this argument then in verse uh, 19. Rather, rather than rebuilding the law, what do we want? Verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law. So that's what it meant to tear down what he tore down in 18. The tearing down was an analogy, a metaphor for dying to the law. He says again, verse 19, For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. So here's the argument that he's going to elaborate on. Does Christ say, come to faith apart from works, and then you can just live however you want? No, Paul says it's quite the contrary. Paul says the only way to truly live for God is to first die to the law. What the Jews want to do is they want to live according to the law and say that's what obedience to God looks like. But Paul's saying, no, you cannot truly live to God until you've dealt with your sin first. So Paul says, first and foremost, this is what justification by faith does. It, die, it makes us die to the law. What does that mean? It means the law no longer can condemn me. It means the law no longer holds a... a, 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 a a condemnation over my soul. I am dead. Right? You, a, a judge cannot condemn a dead person. I mean, I guess we can just to put it on the books, but it, it doesn't change that guy at all. We have died to the law. Our condemnation is now over. And so now that we are forgiven, now that our condemnation is dealt with, what can we do? Well, again, verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. So Paul tells them, justification by faith alone is not an excuse to sin. It's the only means you have to truly follow God rightly. You cannot be obedient until you have first died to the law. And so that is what he's seeking to clarify in verses 20 and 21. So, so here he goes on clarifying this. And here's kind of the new normal that I want us to see. This is not necessarily a new normal from how God established it, but this is a new normal for how the Jews were interpreting the Old Testament. And this is how obedience needs to be seen in the Christian life. So this is kind of a two-point sermon, if you will. And the first way that we have a new normal in terms of obedience and how we understand Christian obedience, now that we have been justified by faith and not by obedience, is this, that in Christ we have a new ability to obey God. The reason you need to be justified by faith is because up until that moment, you don't have the ability to obey God. It's not within your power. You can't do it. So that's why Paul says, first and foremost, you need to be justified before you can obey. Because until you're justified, you don't have the means within you to obey. Look at what he says in verse 20. This is really elaborating on this idea of dying to the law. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. This is a, a huge statement, poetic, packed with spiritual significance. Uh, this has been one of the favorite verses of all of Scripture for all, every age of the church. The church fathers loved this verse. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul talks about Christ's real historical crucifixion, and he says that in some way, shape, or form, I was on that cross with him. I died with him. So the first step in this argument towards a new ability to believe is Paul says, here's the first step. Your old self needs to die. Your old self cannot obey God's law. 
And your old self is already condemned by the law. So here's what needs to happen. Punishment needs to be rendered and your old self needs to be judged and your old self needs to die. And there's two ways to do that. You could go to hell. That's one way. For your old self, which has been condemned by the law, you can go to hell. That's one way for your old self to pay for your sins. There's a better way, though. And that is your union with Christ. You have faith in Christ. And what Paul says here is that faith in Christ gives you what we call a union with Christ. So that you now, because of your union with him by faith, you now share in everything that is his. So Christ died for sins. So by your union with him, you have now died for your sins. You were crucified with Christ. Christ was your substitute. He stood on your behalf and he died for your sins. And when you have faith in him, you spiritually join that crucifixion so that now your sins are forgiven and your old self is buried in a tomb somewhere. We see how we have union with Christ spiritually. We join in his death. We have been crucified with Christ. The old man is dead. Our condemnation is taken care of. We, which, by the way, this is the only rabbit trail I'll do today, and I promise. This is why I love the phrase. What I'm using, I'm talking about this phrase, union with Christ. That's the title of the sermon, our union with Christ. And I love that phrase. The phrase that's popular in evangelicalism today is the word relationship. We love that word. Right, we, you hear things like, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Which is not true, just so you know. Uh, Christianity is a religion, the Bible calls it that, it is a religion. It's the best religion in the world. But now, it is true that we have a relationship with God, and it's also true that that's a beautiful and wonderful thing. Uh, so many people grew up in religions where God was only presented to them as this abstract figure wherein their ceremonial rituals appeased him. That there really does, in many religions, lack this kind of intimacy and fellowship that, that Christ offers us with God. So, don't hear me saying it's, it's wrong to ever describe Christianity as having a relationship with God or a relationship with Christ. That's absolutely true. It's profound. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. But the reason I prefer the phrase union with Christ is because I think that term union is stronger than relationship. Because it, it indicates that Jesus and I are more than just friendly with each other. There's more happening by your faith in Christ than just Christ liking you. You are actually sharing in his life. You are, by your union with him, you now share in his death and resurrection. And this, will, this not only happens spiritually by faith, but it will even happen physically. When you physically die and then are resurrected... As 1 Corinthians says, Christ was the first fruits of resurrection. So his resurrection guarantees yours. And 1 Corinthians 15 says, you will resurrect with the same glorified body that he is. Our union with Christ means we share in all that is his. That's why Ephesians 1 begins by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every blessing in the heavenly realms. Once you join Christ, you get all of his blessings. You share his death, you share his resurrection, you share in all that is his. That's why the book of Ephesians also goes to say that though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made you alive with Christ and seated you in the heavenly realms. So you realize right now you are sitting on lawn chairs in the middle of Roswell, New Mexico. But spiritually, you are sitting at the right hand of God in the throne of heaven. The, the Bible talks about you 
present tense, having already, or excuse me, past tense, having already been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Because of your union with Him, He's seated up there, your union with Him, you're seated up there. You share in His death, you share in His life, you share in all that is His. You are more than just friends with Jesus, you are you who have a union with Christ. Which means that His death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. His life is your life. So Paul begins his argument by reminding them, by faith alone, we have union with Christ. And once I have that union, his death becomes mine. I have been crucified with him. Consider me a crucified man. And what are the consequences then of being crucified with Christ? Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, so now what? So my old self is dead. So resurrection, I need to have a new self. And how does he describe the new self? What we just sang. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So why do we obey the law? Because we can. Before that, we didn't have Christ in us. We didn't have the Spirit in us. You weren't able to. You were a sinner. You were born in Adam with the spiritual corruption, where Paul says in Romans 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot submit to His law. But once you die spiritually with Christ... The consequence of that is now, it's not even you who lives, it's Christ who lives in you. You have a new ability that you never had before. So Paul says, is Christ a minister of sin? Certainly not. He's trying to offer you the only power that can actually lead to obedience. He's a minister of righteousness in more ways than one. Now, this does not mean that we never sin, right? This obviously, this doesn't mean that Christ just controls us like a puppet and now we're like, well, what's going on? He's making me do righteousness. We, we still have a sinful flesh. And so Paul talks in Romans about this battle between our spiritual selves and our sinful selves. And that's why in heaven, that's why we're waiting for the resurrection. Once we're glorified there, then sin won't be attractive to us and, and everything will be great. But right now there's a battle. So we can't take this too literally. But the point here, though, is that with my resurrected life, once I've died with Christ, I now live with him. He is in me. And how, now, now we have to ask the question, now how is Christ in you? Because what, his physical body? No, you'll find in, in the book of Romans, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Christ, Romans chapter 8. Christ, who shares that union with the Spirit, has given you his Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. So Christ dwells in you through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So Paul's first argument, here's our new normal in terms of obedience. We are no longer trying to obey the law as sinners without the help of God. We are now obeying the law as those who have been set free from the law, who have died with Christ and now have the Spirit of God empowering us. Christ, it is not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. You now have a new ability to obey God's law. So you see how justification by faith does not lead to lawlessness. Justification by faith gives you the power that leads to obedience. You have a new ability to obey God, something you never had without union with Christ. But here's the next thing Paul gives us. He also gives us proper motivation. It's difficult to do hard things without motivation, right? How many of you would go to work every day if you weren't getting paid? Right? You might even love your job, but I would still bet you probably wouldn't do it unless you thought you were going to get paid or there was at least some uh, motivation at the, at the end of this thing. We need motivation. We work hard for outcomes. So what's our motivation for obeying the law? We know it's difficult. 
If you've been a Christian for even one day, you know how difficult it is to obey God according to his standards every single day. It's hard work. Why not just throw in the towel? We've, we've been saved. We've been justified by faith. Let's just stop working so hard. Well, Paul subtly sneaks in the best motivation. Outside of Christ, your motivation is, is mainly fear. I want to be righteous and I don't want to go to hell. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to earn it. Or maybe it's a love for the law more than a love for God. I, I don't know what it might be. But in Christ, look at the motivation we have. Look at uh, verse 20 again. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. By the way, what's so great about the Son of God? Well, for starters, who loved me and gave himself for me. What better motivation do we need to holiness? Uh, what, what's more attractive to the spirit-filled men? Obey the law or I send you to hell. That's the Jewish mentality. Or obey the law because I love you, I've forgiven you, and I've sacrificed everything for you. How many of you want your children to obey you because they're so afraid of you? Or rather, they want to obey you because they love you and they know that you love them. You see, this is a transformed understanding of obedience. Why do I obey the Christ I have faith in? Even though I've been saved of all my disobedience. I've already been saved of that, so why should I obey him? Well, because he is the one who loved me and willfully gave his life for me. I would argue, if that's not motivation enough, then I don't think that the Spirit of Christ lives in us. What better motivation do we need to obey God than that he loves us? And he gave up his son for us. Paul says, why would I want to go on in living in sin after all Christ has done for me? Why would I want? So in other words, what he's saying is this mentality, I've been saved by faith so I can just do whatever I want. Christ would say, I don't think you've been saved by faith. If you truly understood what happens, the reason you are saved by faith, how that was made accomplished, how that happened, if you truly understood that, you wouldn't even have that kind of a flippant desire. I'll just do whatever I want then. Do you not understand what God has done for you? We now have a new ability to obey God. Because it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And we now have a new motivation to obey God. This life we live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for us. We have a new ability. We have a new motivation. And then here's how Paul concludes. He concludes with a very strong argument. Verse 21 of Galatians chapter 2 is the single verse that obliterates, tears down, and destroys any religious system that would try to mix faith and works when it comes to being justified before God. Any religious system that claims the name of Christ, but thinks, no, you still have to do all of these works in order to be saved. That religious system is obliterated by this verse. Here's how Paul concludes all of his arguments. If you're still not convinced at justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law, then here's what you're left with. You're left with a purposeless cross. Paul says, okay, fine. Don't believe me. Don't be justified by faith. Go ahead. Seek righteousness according to the law, but don't claim the name of Christ because in that system, you don't have a need for Christ. Look at what he says. I do not nullify the grace of God. Paul is saying that my gospel is truly the gospel of grace. Yours is the gospel of works and condemnation. Mine's the one of grace. And here's how I know that, because I am saved by grace, you're saved by yourself. So that's why Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. 
Christ died needlessly. This is why I say non-Christian religions are far more consistent in their justification by faith and works doctrine than all of those that claim to be Christians yet still maintain that. You take Islam, for example. I brought this up last week. Islam is justification by works and faith. You can't just believe in Allah. You have to obey him to a certain degree and he will weigh the scales at eternity. If you are good enough, you'll get into heaven. That's false. I don't believe that. That's terrifying. But it's more consistent because they don't have a cross. So it works. How do I get into heaven? There's no sacrifice. There's no forgiveness offered to me somewhere else. So I just better obey God and hope I get in. But Paul says, if you have a cross in your religious system, if you have a Jesus who died, what purpose was that death accomplishing if not forgiving you of your sins? If, if, if Jesus died, yet I still have to earn my righteousness by obeying the law, well, then why did he die? It's purposeless. If you can't look to the cross and say, that's where my justification is found, that's where my righteousness is found. Don't look at the law to find it. Look to the cross. If you can't look to the cross, you have to look to the law and say, here's where my righteousness is. Then you don't need the cross. Just obey the law and be saved. Paul says, no, the whole purpose of the cross was because the law can't save. Your obedience can't save you. You cannot be good enough. You cannot earn it. You cannot work toward it. You cannot be saved by your obedience. So because of that, now we have the cross. Verse 21 is a powerful argument. If you believe that your works contribute to your justification, then you have a needless cross. It was just this random event that accidentally happened somewhere in Jerusalem and it has no bearing on your Christian religion. And obviously Paul's audience knows that's insane. He is utilizing the cross, the gospel of Christ, to remind us that your forgiveness happens at Jesus' death. Your justification is on the grounds of Jesus' death, not on the grounds of your ability to keep the law. When we stand before heaven, when we stand before God on judgment day, we can offer him two things, our rap sheet or Jesus' crucifixion. Those are the only two things you will offer God. Either here's the law you gave and here's how well I followed it, judge me accordingly. And Paul says if you go there, you will only be condemned. Or you can say, Christ died for my sins. And I have union with him. And when he died, I died with him. I was crucified with Christ. He now lives in me. I've been justified by faith alone. That's what you want to stand on on judgment day. Not a needless cross, not a purposeless cross, but a cross that has accomplished redemption.